Let's dive right into our text this morning. Daniel chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, now that should catch your eye for a moment, we're going back in time, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. If you were to divide the book of Daniel into two simple sections, the first six chapters are largely narrative, while the last six focus primarily on the prophetic. Beginning with Daniel 7 and continuing to the end of the book, we will find the record of several prophetic dreams and visions that Daniel has during the twilight years of his life. As he'll do with each of these prophecies, Daniel opens the chapter, telling us this particular dream and vision was given to him during the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. This tells us Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for quite a few years. The throne has been hacky-sacked around before finally landing with Nabonidus, who then quickly makes his son Belshazzar king or co-regent over the city. Regarding the timing, we now know that because of this description that the prophecy has to take place somewhere uh, in the years between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel 5. Now since we're transitioning into what will be several weeks of complex prophecy, I want you to know up front there is a huge, huge difference between a prophecy and a prediction. A prediction concerning future events is a formulated, educated guess based upon the accumulation of data and details. But in contrast, a prophecy, oh, it's not a prediction. A prophecy is when the Most High God intentionally peels back the veil of time in order to reveal what is going to happen in human history. It's amazing when you consider, but roughly 25% of your Bible is prophetic in nature, which is intentional. Not only does the fulfillment of prophecy deepen our faith and the divine origins of the Bible itself, but the fulfillment of prophecy helps us trust God with our present circumstances. You see, if you're confident that God holds tomorrow in His hands, then you'll believe He has no problem taking care of your today. Again, prophecy is not a prediction as to what may happen, but God revealing to us what will happen in future affairs. And while that's incredible, because prophecy is God enabling man to peer into the future, the challenge then centers on the articulation of what the prophet is actually seeing with his own two eyes. You see, human language strains to describe the supernatural, especially when the revelation manifests through dreams and visions. When it comes to fulfilled prophecy, making sense of the various components of a particular dream or vision is obviously much easier. Hindsight, looking back, is much clearer than foresight, looking forward. The difficulty, though, when it comes to prophecy, ends up dealing with prophetic sections of Scripture that have yet to be fulfilled in history. For example, I listened to three pastors that I respect and admire on Daniel 7. Three different pastors. All three of them had wide-ranging different interpretations of this chapter. With this in mind, I want to establish a few ground rules for how we'll handle prophecy in the coming weeks. First, and this will be simple, but if the prophecy has a clear fulfillment in history, no problem. 
we'll have no issues lining up the details. But on the flip side, if the prophecy doesn't have an obvious fulfillment, meaning you've got to stretch to make things work, then it likely hasn't been fulfilled, which undoubtedly will complicate and convolute our path forward. And it's in these situations, future prophecy, that any conclusions reach need to be first dictated by the text itself, and two, expositionally consistent with the way that certain images play themselves out in other prophetic passages. Never forget, prophecy is God's way of revealing the future to us, not concealing it from us. While there are mysteries unknown, when it comes to future prophecy, the generalities are knowable. Like, amazingly, the God of heaven and earth wants his people, you and I, to know the future. And why? So that we might be prepared for it and not blindsided by it. In a lot of ways, the New Testament itself will help us. See, the New Testament will help us cipher some of the images of the Old Testament. Help us make sense of things. Like this morning, we'll see this in action. As the prophecy we'll look at in Daniel 7 is referenced 58 times in the New Testament. Like mostly in the book of Revelation. You see, the overlap of specific images will prove helpful in rounding out our understanding of what these ancient prophecies mean. In the end, when it comes to future prophecy, humility is critical. And being overly dogmatic, foolish. Though I'm not going to spend any time really expounding upon interpretations of things I disagree with. I will do my best to refrain from using the ambiguity of a text to make definitive statements. Like, as your pastor, when I speculate as to the meaning of something, I will be clear I'm speculating, and this is just an opinion. Now, there are a lot of ways that you could approach a prophetic text like Daniel 7. This morning, I want to read through the chapter in its entirety before we kind of wade into the weeds. Verse 2, Daniel 7. So Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night. Don't forget, dreams occur when you're sleeping, visions when you're awake. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side, kind of lumpy, and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. They said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue, or literally the rest, with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. 
before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth, speaking pompous words. This word pompous means great and powerful, lofty words. Verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, or, or cast down. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. White signifies purity, holiness, righteousness. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Fire speaking of judgment. A thousand, thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. This was the largest conceivable number, meaning Daniel saying the, the, the mass of people, it was innumerable. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, the lion, bear, and leopard, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. Now, pause for a moment. Like, I should add that this vision was more than just Daniel seeing something playing out in front of him as if it were a screen. Like, his ability here to come near one of those who stood by and actually interact with an individual, it implies that Daniel's not just watching something happening in front of him, but he's like immersed in the scene. Everything's happening around him. And most notably, he's not the only one there. Now, now, most people think that at this point, Daniel turns and he speaks with an angel. Now, the problem with that is we'll see him talking to angels in some of the other visions, but he doesn't specify that in this one. I'll get to this later. <laughs> blow, 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 blow your mind for a moment. I think Daniel's actually talking with the Apostle John. We'll get to that. So he, the one who stood by, told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. <laughs> it's a long time. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the rest with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had the eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, and this is a further explanation of the things Daniel had seen, 
He adds, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall break, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings, who shall rise from this kingdom. And another shall rise after them, he shall be different from the first ones, and subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High. This word persecute, it means to, to harass or to cause friction, to burn against. And he shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, and times, and half a time. A uh, time is one year, times, plural, two years, half a time, gives us one plus two plus a half, three and a half years. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. My countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's begin trying to unpack this with what we know for sure about this vision. In response to what he had seen, beginning with verse 16, Daniel asked the one who stood by him two questions. First, he asks, what's the truth of all of this? Basically, like, what's the whole point of this vision? So the second question is he asks, what was the truth about the fourth beast, the ten horns, and specifically, that horn that had an eyes and mouth that spoke pompous words? Obviously, he wants some clarity on those things as well. Now, concerning the first question, what's this whole thing about? Verse 17 is clear. That those great beasts, which are four, are four kings. And in the Aramaic, kings and kingdoms are interchangeable. It's the same word. So therefore, kingdoms which arise out of the earth. So we know four kingdoms. Verse 18 then explains the purpose, the entire purpose of the vision, was to illustrate the inevitable downfall of these four earthly kingdoms and the ultimate victory of the saints of the Most High, who will receive the kingdom and possess that kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Traditionally, scholars view this vision recorded in Daniel 7 as really nothing more than a repeating of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2 concerning the succession of world empires. They claim the notable difference between the two is the kingdoms of man presented in, in chapter 2, as this towering image of gold and silver and bronze and iron, are now being described from the perspective of God. They're wild beasts. To this point, you'll hear it said that the lion represents Babylon, the bear, the Medo-Persian Empire, the leopard, a reference to Alexander the Great and the, and the rapid spread of Gre Grecian dominance, and this fourth beast who had huge iron teeth, the Roman Empire. Now, for the record, while this is the traditional way this vision is presented, I completely disagree with this interpretation. Completely disagree. The first issue with this understanding is that verse 17, if you notice, it places all four kingdoms in the future. Like in the Aramaic, this sentence 
those great beasts are four kingdoms which arise out of the earth, would be better translated as four kingdoms which are destined to arise out of the earth. In fact, the old King James translates this as being four kingdoms which shall arise out of the earth. Future tense. The future tense, it tells us that these four kingdoms in reference, these four kingdoms being described, do not exist when Daniel is receiving the vision. Like that instantly excludes Babylon from being the first. Now, now it is true, the Ishtar gates, there are big images of lions. Lions were associated with Babylon. That's true. But you'll never find a depiction of a lion with wings in connection with Babylon. Like furthermore, while you can play with the imagery of the bear and the leopard fitting with the Persians and the Greeks, the description we're provided of Rome being governed by a collection of ten kings has zero historical justification whatsoever. And in fact, the only way that you can make an argument at all for the Roman Empire being this fourth kingdom would be to completely spiritualize the text, eliminating any type of literal meaning. If you do that, all bets are off. The fact of the matter is the evidence simply just doesn't support the position. The second challenge centers on the specific way that Daniel describes what he's seeing in this vision. In verse 7, he says concerning this fourth beast that it was different from all that were before it. Now, I understand that can be confusing. But in the original Aramaic, this word that we have, before it, it means in the presence of. In fact, never once is this word ever used to denote succession or a chronological sequence. The simple fact is Daniel isn't seeing, nor is he describing, a progression of world empires like he does in chapter 2. With this in mind, look again at what Daniel sees. Verse 2, he says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Like, like in his vision, Daniel observes the great sea, which was a reference to all, all peoples and nations and languages of the world, being divinely thrown into chaos from this stirring up being caused by the four winds of heaven. Then, in the midst of this global mayhem, Daniel sees, he witnesses these four great beasts arise at the same time from the sea. Like Daniel is not describing four kingdoms coming one after the other, but coming all together. And yet, while these different kingdoms are contemporaries of each other, the first three, the lion, the bear, and the leopard, coming before the fourth beast, which was dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong, and different, it implies subservience. The three in service to the fourth. Now regarding this fourth beast, more powerful than the others, and then it had, it had huge iron teeth and nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and trampled the rest with its feet, Daniel also notices that this beast had ten horns. Trippy, isn't it? Horns signify power and authority. As Daniel watches, he sees of these ten another horn, 
a little one. Coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. Like this little horn assumes the place of three, now leaving seven. And there in this horn, Daniel saw eyes, like the eyes of a man. This horn had a mouth to speak pompous words. His appearance was greater than his fellows. There is no question this little horn is a man who ascends to incredible power within this kingdom. Now pertaining to the interpretation, like what do these things mean? We don't actually have to speculate as to the meaning of many of them because the, the text provides the answer. Beginning in verse 23, Daniel's told that the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, shall devour the whole earth, so it's a global kingdom, shall trample it, break it into pieces. Furthermore, we're told the ten horns, no mystery there, they're ten, ten kings who arise from this fourth kingdom. Like what we have being described is a global superpower aligned with these three additional nations, the lion, the bear, and the leopard, governed by ten kings. And yet, there is this other king who shall arise after them, the ten. He, being this man, is different from the first ones because he subdued three kings. He has more power. This leader, we're told, speaks pompous words. He blasphemes the Most High God. He persecutes the saints. In fact, verse 21 says, he makes war against the saints and prevails against them. This leader intends to change times and laws. The vision, again, is also clear that this little horn, this leader, his power will only last a time and times and half a time, three and a half years. Now, following this defined period of time, Daniel observes that this horrific persecution of God's people, it would be allowed only until the Ancient of Days came. And a judgment was made in favor of the saints who were being persecuted. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. At that point, Daniel says that the, the courts are seated, thrones are cast down, a fiery stream issued, books are opened. Judgment. We're told the little horns dominion this powerful man his dominions taken away he's consumed destroyed the beast this fourth kingdom slain comes to an end its body is given to the burning flame now concerning the other three beasts typified by the lion bear and leopard we're told they have their dominion taken away as well but their lives are prolonged for a season and a time like in the end not every kingdom on earth will be destroyed just the main one. Continuing on, in conjuncture with this incredible judgment, Daniel said he saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. To him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It shall not pass away. His kingdom is the one that's not destroyed. We're also told, and again, this is the whole point of the vision, the kingdom under the whole of heaven once this fourth kingdom goes away, this kingdom will be given to the saints of the Most High to serve and obey Him. Now, before I explain the future fulfillment of this prophecy, let's also take a second and define a few additional components of the vision. Maybe not provided in the text, but provided by the New Testament. 
as to the identity of this ancient of days, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool, this ancient of day whose throne was a fiery flame and before whom a thousand thousands ministered, ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. We know the ancient of days to be Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 12, we're told that John turned to see the voice that was speaking to him. And he says, After turning, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a band of gold. His hair and head were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. I should add that the prophet Daniel is the only Old Testament writer that refers to the coming Messiah using this title, the Son of Man. It's something unique to Daniel. Now what makes that interesting is that of all the titles that Jesus uses for himself, you want to take a guess what he uses? Yeah, 81 times he refers to himself as the Son of Man. One of the most stark examples of this is in Mark chapter 14. Jesus has been arrested. He's going to be crucified. He's being tried before Caiaphas. We're told the high priest stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus saying, Do you answer nothing to these accusations? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and he didn't answer a thing. Again, the high priest asked him saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? To this Jesus did reply. He said, I am. Now, notice what he says next. He says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Like he, he specifically references back to this chapter, this scene concerning himself, which shouldn't then surprise you that the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need of, of witnesses do we have? You've heard blasphemy. So they condemned him to death. Now, regarding the identity of the little horn and this fourth beast, the New Testament again provides for us quite a bit of clarity. In Revelation 13, John writes the following. S see if this sounds familiar. He says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, now in Revelation 12, the dragon's identified as Satan, gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. He was given a mouth to speak great things and blasphemies. He was given authority to continue for 42 months, three and a half years, then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. Authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Like not only is John's vision in Revelation 13 and Daniel's in chapter 7 nearly identical, but it confirms for us the fact that this little horn in Daniel 7 
is this final world leader often referred to in Scripture as the Antichrist. Uh, Though these men receive the same vision of the future, some 600 years apart, Daniel and John. You know, since this is all taking place outside of time and space, like why couldn't Daniel's vision into the future include the Apostle John also standing there watching the same future event take place? One of the reasons I think it's John interacting with Daniel. Trippy. I mean, we're into some back-to-the-future stuff. So, what event is Daniel and John seeing play out in the future? At some point, yet future, four kingdoms will rise to power in a world, the great sea, stirred into chaos by the four winds of heaven, which signify an act of God. I believe that what stirs the world into chaos is the rapture of the church. It's my opinion. Now, of these four kingdoms, one, rising from the ashes of the Roman Empire, will prove to be the most dominant and powerful. Now, you might think, well, how do we know that, Zach? Well, we derive that this fourth kingdom comes from the remnants of the Roman Empire, A, because of the reference of iron, teeth, but also we connect the dots back to Daniel 2, when we're told this final kingdom in question is made up of ten toes of iron mixed partly with clay. While this European state will be initially governed by ten kings, according to the vision, it won't take long for the Antichrist, this little horn, to consolidate power to himself. In fact, John tells us that his power is given to him by Satan, the dragon. Not only are three kingdoms, the lion, the bear, and and the leopard, submitting to him, but it would seem even within his own kingdom, he consolidates his power by assuming the position of three of the ten. With an iron fist, this Antichrist, the little horn, will dominate the world stage. Again, what we're told, he speaks pompous words, great promises, deceptions. He blasphemes God, the Most High. And during the final three and a half years of his reign, he will engage in a systematic global persecution of the saints of God. In the end, this season of of life, these three and a half years, will come to an abrupt end. When Jesus returns to destroy this kingdom, casting the Antichrist into the lake of fire, replacing these things with his kingdom on the earth, where the saints of God will rule and reign with him. Well, in Revelation, as John looks at this vision, he sees this future kingdom as one beast that was like a leopard had feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. Daniel, he sees it a little differently. He sees it more specifically that this kingdom is kind of comprised of an alliance of four separate powers. So, if we reject the notion that the the lion is Babylon and the bear is the Medes and the Persians and the leopard is the Greeks, who are they? Admittedly, this is one of those moments. This is where I think we're only left to speculation. You can't say for sure. But, for fun, let's speculate. 
In verse 4, we read the first of these kingdoms was like a lion with eagle's wings. Fascinating. Daniel continues, he says, I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. You know, it's not outside the, the realm of possibility that a lion with eagle's wings might very well be an alliance forged between Great Britain, lion, and America, bald eagle. You know, it's interesting to note that just last year, we saw a really unexpected twist of global affairs. Britain officially broke from the European Union. They stand on their own. Now, while we're not given any specifics, if this is what Daniel's seeing, According to the text, at some point, America, this eagle's wings, will no longer be an international player. Like, imagine how Britain would be weakened if its wings were plucked off. Something happens to America, now forcing Britain to stand on her own, on her own two feet. Verse 5. Daniel says, and suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. Historically, Russia has always been known as the bear. Like it could be that these three ribs in its mouth spoke of a collection of nations under Russian influence. Like either way, the bear, we're told, ends up being used to wage war, causing incredible human casualties. Again, I believe Ezekiel 38 and 39, another prophecy, provides us further insight into the Russian role in end times affairs. If this sounds trippy to you, like if you were to describe maybe today's political environment, you might say something like this, that the donkey and the elephant... We're waging war to see who would be in control of the eagle, right? The Democrats, the Republicans, an election. Like, that's how we would understand. Symbols are common, especially when it comes to nationalities. Now, in verse 6, we read of this third. After this, I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. (laughs) Like, without a doubt, a four-winged leopard... Like, if you ever run into a leopard in the wild, you're in trouble. If you ever run into a leopard in the wild that's got four wings, you're in a heap load of trouble. If that leopard with four wings also has four heads, that's the trippiest thing you have ever seen. This kingdom, we can conclude, like a leopard, was fast and agile. The truth, it's impossible to say who the leopard represents. There is no nation on the world stage of any note that has the leopard as their predominant symbol. Again, my speculation, my guess, is that this is probably likely some type of coalition of four Asian powers that consolidate. Now, before we wrap things up with a little application, I do want to address the persecution of the saints of the Most High by the Antichrist, during these final three and a half years of what is known as a seven-year period of tribulation. Who are these saints? And remember, Daniel is writing from Babylon 
500 years before Jesus. This is an important question. Who are the saints? Writing to the Colossian church, the Apostle Paul, he closes his first chapter by making a critical observation about the Old Testament writers. He says, quote, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Here's the mystery. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, Paul is saying that the one component of God's plan for the world, for the ages, what he calls this mystery, hidden from ages, hidden from generations, this mystery of, of God's dealings with the future that not one of the Old Testament prophets had the ability to see or even conceive of was the rise of the Gentile church in place of the nation of Israel. It was the fact that the gospel went to the Gentiles. Now, what that tells us and why that's important is that everything that Daniel would be writing, he, he doesn't see any of this. Everything he's writing from his context 500 years before Jesus in Babylon as a Hebrew would be Jewish-centric. As such, the saint of the Most High wouldn't have been the church. He doesn't have a concept of the church. Nor would it have been Gentile Christians. Again, no idea of that. Instead, the saints of the Most High would be Jewish followers of the Messiah, Jesus. We're going to pause on that thought because we're going to get to it in more details in coming weeks. Let's close our time with two big points of application. <laughs> yes, there's some points of application. Look again at verse 27. We're told, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. You know, it is a very natural and even an appropriate desire, longing, for Christians to want the kingdom of God. Desiring the kingdom of God. And in fact, in Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus ascends to heaven, the disciples are gathered, and they ask Him, like the most pressing question to them is, Lord, will you at this time post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, is now the time to restore the kingdom. They, they want to know about the kingdom. Jesus kind of brushes them aside, tells them they need the Holy Spirit. They're going to go out into the world. But I want you to notice, yes, we should desire the kingdom of God, but notice how the kingdom will come according to Daniel's vision. We're told it shall be given to the people the saints of the Most High. <laughs> Understand, the world that we all long to see established on this earth, the society, the culture, a world of justice, equity, and fairness, a world of love and joy and equality, a world where people live together, coexist in peace and understanding. That world, the kingdom of God that we all want to see, is not 
something the church can create or build or make happen or achieve through social initiatives or just getting more people converted. You see, when you move beyond the doom and the gloom of this passage, Daniel's vision, it tells us the future of how the kingdom of God will come to earth. Things got to get really bad. Jesus has to come back, has to crush the enemy, and establish a kingdom that he will give to all the people and saints. Fundamentally, the kingdom of God is not something we earn or achieve. It's a gift that Jesus gives to humanity. It's not an accident that in Luke 11, verse 2, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, teach us how to pray. So Jesus says, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now notice, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the remedy, what we should be praying for this world, is not a kingdom that the church attempts to make on the earth, but a kingdom that must come from heaven. May your kingdom come. Lastly, I want you to consider Daniel's reaction to knowing the future. Like in response to what he sees in verse 15, we read, I, Daniel, was grieved in my, in my spirit within my body. I love that phrase. It's like a knife in a sheaf. This body's not me. It just holds me. Knife in a sheaf. My spirit within my body. And the visions of my head, they troubled me. And then in verse 28, after getting the interpretation of what he'd seen, Daniel writes, this is the end of the account. As for me, my thoughts greatly troubled me. My countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Like Daniel saw the future of our planet. He saw not what might happen, but what would happen. And that knowledge had an immediate, palpable effect on him. He was grieved in his spirit. His thoughts troubled him. His countenance was so disturbed it changed. Daniel's heart broke knowing what was coming. Friend, if you really believe that you know the future, it will have a profound and immediate impact on the way you live your life right now. I'll give you an easy example. If I told you that God had revealed to me tomorrow's Georgia Lotto numbers, like for real, you know, it's easy to know if you actually believe me or think I'm crazy. Like, if you're convinced I know the future and I just told it to you, as soon as we're done with the service, you will leave church, swing by a gas station, and buy one ticket. You don't need many. You got the numbers. You just need one. Proof's in the pudding. You understand, Daniel basically sees two kingdoms colliding in the future there's the kingdom of man led by this replacement christ and then there's the kingdom of god led by jesus christ and daniel knew that one would end in destruction and judgment fire but the other would ascend to glory and dominion forever 
And don't forget, this was not a prediction of what may happen, but God revealing to all of humanity through Daniel's vision what will take place on this earth. You know, in light of these things, if you haven't done so, I encourage you to choose to be on the right side of history. <laughs> you know where it all ends. You have a choice. Which side do you want to be on? What team to play for? If you've already made this choice and consider yourself a saint of the Most High, take courage. Knowing that in spite of whatever might happen between now and then, persecution, <laughs> when it's all said and done, you'll be on the right side of history. You know how it ends. And finally, if you know someone presently on the wrong side of history and they don't know it, love them enough to share what their future destiny looks like. How can you do that? According to Daniel 7, you know the future. So Father, let those things settle into our hearts.